So everyday discipleship, that's our, that's our big theme. And we're using Paul's letter to the Corinthians to address these different issues that surround discipleship. So today we are looking at the very challenging topic of church discipline. You know, this is, this is kind of one of the things that happens when you teach through books of the Bible. You, you come to things that you wouldn't necessarily just get up and randomly speak about. You know, if somebody asked me, hey, would you come and speak at our church? I would not say, sure, I'll come and speak on church discipline. That is, that is not a topic that would be, you know, at the, at the top of the list for me. And the good thing about going through books of the Bible is it forces you to address things that you just probably wouldn't necessarily address. But it's an important topic. But it is challenging. But I do think that God has a word for us as we look at this topic today. So let me just remind you, as we come to this fifth chapter, we're coming now to a new topic. So remember that uh, Paul has been, for the first three and a half chapters, really, he's been, he's been dealing with the same issue, and it's the issue of the, uh, the carnality of the Corinthians that was manifesting itself in this desire to be accepted by the world, to be seen as wise and clever and all of that sort of thing. That, that was going on. So Paul had said to them, uh, he had referred to them as carnal. Carnal meaning that although they were born of the Spirit of God, they were not acting like that. They were behaving just like everyone else. And so, as I said, they wanted, uh, what it came down to is they really wanted the blessing of Christ, but they didn't want to be associated with the humiliation and weakness of his death on the cross. Uh, they wanted to reign with Christ in the end, but they also wanted a place of honor among the social elites of the day. They wanted to be part of the in crowd. And so Paul summed up uh, his message to them on that point. I, I think these words sum it up well. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may be truly wise. So that, that's kind of where he ended uh, with addressing that particular issue. So now that he's addressed that, he's moving on to the next thing. Now, the, the Corinthian church was uh, a mess. And this letter is predominantly corrective. Now, when you look at the epistles and specifically Paul's epistles, you find that they are, they're, some of them are very heavy in the realm of doctrine, teaching us about God, who he is, Christ, who he is, what he's done, the cross, those kinds of things, uh, Romans, Ephesians, uh, etc. Th those are the, the heavily doctrinal letters. And then you have some of his letters that are more of a sort of a split down the middle between doctrine and 
practical things. And then you have some that swing a little bit more heavy toward the practical side. And 1 Corinthians is that. It's, it's really a letter that Paul writes to correct all of the misunderstanding and the, the bad behavior that was going on in the church. It's kind of a funny thing because we often talk about wanting to get back to being like the early church. You know, we, we sort of idealize the early church as this place where it was just perfect and God was moving powerfully and man, if we could just get back to being like they were. Well, that's partially true. The other side of the coin is that the early church was messed up and Corinth was kind of the poster child church for a church that was messed up. But it was still the church. They were still the people of God. And so Paul is writing to correct where they uh, had got things wrong. And so what he's going to deal with here now, and we saw it in the verses that we read, is really blatant, unrepentant, undisciplined, even celebrated sin. That's what was happening that he is now addressing here. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the situation as we see it in the text that we read and what Paul calls the Corinthians to do about the sin that was in the camp. And then we'll look more specifically at the issue of church discipline. Like, well, what is church discipline? And when do we do it? And how do we do it? And what is the objective? So that will be where we will uh, end up. But let's start by just walking through these 12 verses. The first thing that we see here is that the issue was really over-the-top sexual immorality. Sexual immorality that was even uh, offensive to the unbelievers. Look what he says. He says, it is actually reported. It's almost like you could hear Paul's tone like, I cannot believe this. I mean, it, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. That's not so surprising, but of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are proud of it. You're proud that you have tolerated this kind of sin in your midst. So, over the top, sexual immorality. Again, sexual immorality was not all that... Um, it, it, you know, it could have been common, but it was a specific type of sexual immorality that Paul says even the pagans were shocked by this. Now, in the Roman world, the Roman world was, uh, especially sexually, it was, it was very, very, what we would say from a biblical standpoint, it was very immoral. Um, you know, kind of the, the sexual ethics of, of the day are similar, but probably not as extreme as they were in the Roman world. But even though that was the case, they still had their limits. And so the behavior of the Corinthians was kind of blowing the mind of the pagans around them. 
they, they saw what was going on and they thought, whoa, that's, I mean, wait, you know, these people are supposed to be Christians and I, I don't think they should be doing that. We wouldn't even do that. We, we wouldn't even behave that way. That's what they're saying. Now, you know, we've kind of come to a place in our culture where this kind of stuff is going on. I don't know if you've, you know, maybe you've seen this uh, somewhere, you've, you've read about it, but there is a thing uh, that's quite po- uh, common in certain areas uh, called drag queen story time. And drag queen story time is where these drag queens, these men, you know, dressed, dressed up as, as women, transvestites, they go into libraries and communities and they have a, a reading time for the kids. Now, I don't know what you think about that. I think that's pretty over the top. But I'll tell you what's even more over the top. When a church in town invited them to come to their church and to read stories to their kids. And I guarantee, even though the church was proud of it, even though they thought they were really cool and trendy, I guarantee that the pagans around the church were like, what? What, 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 what in the heck are these Christians thinking? They, they, even they would know that this is problematic. And yet, a local church did this very thing. So they, uh, th- th- this whole thing was over the top and there was this pride. It was a pride in their tolerance that they were exhibiting. And they completely failed to act or to respond to this in a God-honoring way. And so he says, he says, a man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? So they failed completely to act in a God-honoring way. Now, the next thing we see is Paul's assessment and verdict on the situation. So Paul is not there. Paul hears about this. And immediately, Paul assesses the situation as, this is wrong. It's plain and simple. This is wrong, and this is how it should have already been dealt with, and this is how it needs to be dealt with. Now, some people would say, well, you know, how did Paul know that this was wrong? Or why? So the church leaders are kind of like, well, I'm, we're not sure if it's wrong. Paul, there's no question in his mind whatsoever. Immediately. He knows this is wrong. How was that the case? Here's how he knew. Paul was a man who was formed and informed by scripture. He, he was shaped by scripture. His life was immersed in scripture. He saw the world through the lens of scripture. And so it formed him, it shaped him, it's who he was, and it informed him. He understood what was right and wrong because of what God had said in his word. And listen, that is the only way you're ever gonna determine what is right or wrong because everything else is up for grabs. Everything else is an opinion. 
That's the world we live in today. Well, uh, I don't think it's wrong. And who are you to tell me that it's wrong? And who is anybody to tell me that it's wrong? And there's no source of authority that anybody today is really going to respect. But God's word is fixed. It's set. It's, it's been the same century after century, millennium after millennium. It's been the same. And so Paul was informed by scripture. So Paul would have known immediately when he hears about this, he would have known that the scriptures specifically forbid this kind of behavior. Leviticus chapter 18. We know it as chapter 18. They didn't have chapters back then, but Paul knew the biblical text. This is what it says. God is speaking. Keep my decrees and laws for the person who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. No one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations. I am the Lord. Here it is. Do not have sexual relations with your father's wife. That would dishonor your father. Do not defile yourselves in, in any of these ways because this is how the nations that I'm going to drive out before you became defiled. Even the land was defiled, so I punished it for its sin and the land vomited out its inhabitants, but you must keep my decrees and laws. Paul knew this instantly. He was able to take the truth of God's word. He was able through the scripture to assess and to pass judgment on the situation. And that is the way that we know as well what is right and wrong. You know, people often, like when we talk about, and especially today, I mean, obviously, uh, sexuality is, is a massive idol in our culture and so many things revolve around the issues of sexuality. And, and people always want to push back with, well, who are you to, to tell me that this is the way that a person is supposed to live and so forth? And I understand that. And I actually agree with that to a certain extent. If it's simply me telling you about how you should live sexually, who, who am I to tell you? What, what authority do I have? It basically comes down to, well, this is my opinion. I think this. I don't think you should do that. But there's another component here to the issue. And the component is whether or not, number one, there is a God, and number two, whether or not he said anything about these things. Now, I believe that there is a God and I believe that he has spoken about these things and so my conviction and my uh, you know, perspective on this is not rooted in what I think about these things, it's rooted in what God has said about it. And that's how, my friends, that is how we have always been called to live life. That is how we are going to navigate the current moment and the days ahead. We have to have that kind of uh, stability just as Paul was able, without any hesitation, he was able to just point clearly to the fact that this is wrong. It's wrong because God 
said it's wrong. And God is the one who created everything, and he created it for a reason, with a purpose, and to function in certain ways and to not function in other ways. So Paul assesses, but then he uh, passes the verdict. What does he say? So we look back down at the text. He says, for my part, even though, well, first he said that you, uh, putting the man out of the fellowship who has been doing this, he says, for my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit as one who is present with you in this way. I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So here's what you do when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. So that's, that's Paul's verdict. This is what they are to do. They are to put this man uh, who's doing this, they're to put this man out of the fellowship and Paul says they are to hand him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. What in the world does that mean? Well, note this, Paul believes that Satan is real. There is a devil. And he also believes that Satan is at work to try to undermine what God is wanting to do in the church. So he sees that um, Satan is at work here, but he says to hand this man over to Satan. This man is to be put out of the community and thus outside the protection of Christ. You see, Paul understood that those who walked in obedience to Christ as his people and were there as part of the family of God, the community, uh, Paul understood that there was an element of protection there. But he also understands that if you put yourself outside of that through disobedience to God, you put yourself in a position for Satan to really have a go at you. Um, I love this, this quote from N.T. Wright. He said, Paul sees the world outside the church as the sphere over which Satan has unfettered power. So that to put someone out of the community is to expel them from the sphere in which Christ saves, delivers, or protects them. So what Paul is saying is, Put this person outside so that Satan, in a sense, can uh, have a go at him. Satan has a heyday, so to speak, that will hopefully bring this person to their senses and to repentance so that their spirit will be saved in the day of the Lord. So this is a disciplinary act. Now, I want you to see this as well. Paul, notice what he says. He says, okay, you're gonna do this. I'm not physically with you, but my spirit is gonna be with you. And then he says, and the power of the Lord Jesus. Paul sees church discipline as something that the Lord himself is doing through his people. So this isn't just 
a, a human thing. This is not just, well, we decided this, and so we're going to do that. This is something that God himself has called us to do, and he's with us as we obey him in these difficult processes. So in a sense, it's like, so here's a person, and they're unrepentant. They, they don't want to listen. And so it's like, okay, they want to play with the devil? Then so be it. You go out here and you, you play around in the devil's world, and let's see when the reality of what it is sinks in. Let's see what you think then. And the objective, though, of course, is that they would come running back to the church and say, oh, God, forgive me. I don't want to be part of that world. So it's, it's a disciplinary thing, but it's a disciplinary thing for, for protection, for protection of the body, for protection of the person. And so then Paul goes on and he says this. He says, your boasting is not good. And then he says, don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread, leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, this is really interesting that Paul goes in this direction, because Paul now introduces these two very Jewish things into his uh, instruction here to a group of people that are not Jewish for the most part. There are some Jews in the congregation in Corinth, but the majority of the Corinthian Christians were Gentiles. So the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, unless they had been instructed about this, they wouldn't really know the significance of that. But this is a teaching moment. Paul is teaching them just as he would have drawn from Leviticus, like we saw a minute ago when he addresses the sin that was there among them. So now, once again, he's drawing from the scriptures. He's drawing from the law. And this is the point that he's making by, by referencing the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover. The point that he's making is that God requires purity among his people. You see, the Passover lamb that was brought to the priest for the sacrifice had to be spotless. It had to be pure. It could not have any blemish. It could not have any defect whatsoever. Why? Because that lamb was a representative of the lamb of God who would come ultimately to take away the sin of the world, Jesus, who himself was sinless. So the lamb had to be without blemish. So Christ is sinless. Now, unleavened bread, these two, these two things went hand in hand. So the Passover began with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. What happened then? All, uh, all of the, the homes within the community, they were responsible to go into their homes and to purge all of the leaven out of the home. There could be no leaven in the home, and then they had to bake this bread, and the bread was without leaven. Why? Because leaven is a type of sin. You see, sin, like yeast, 
will permeate and corrupt the whole loaf, and therefore it must be eradicated. And so Paul draws on these two Jewish festivals, really, that emphasized purity through the, uh, the spotlessness of the lamb and the, the lack of uh, leaven among the people to show, to remind the Christians now, these Gentile Christians, that God has called them to live godly, righteous, and pure lives. And so he's, he's pointing to these things. He says, Christ, our Passover, he's been sacrificed for us. Listen, he's, he's really saying, listen, you're, you're part of something now that you were not part of before, formerly in your Gentile, your pagan life. In your pagan life, there was no emphasis on any kind of sexual purity. You have now entered into a new thing where purity is something that God calls his people to. So that's why he brings these two things into the picture. Now, he then, he goes on and he says this, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Just really quickly, here's a, Paul references a letter that we don't have. It'll come up again later, but just to say that right now. He references a letter that we don't have uh, telling them not to associate with sexually immoral people. And then he says, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the planet. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, a swindler, and so on. He says, do not even eat with such people. So what he's doing right here is he's bringing this teaching of the need for discipline. He's taking it now from the level of the church leadership that is responsible. That's who he's talking to initially. He's talking to the church leaders. They need to discipline the person in the church. Now he's bringing it down to the individual believers and showing that we individually, we also have a responsibility to maintain Godliness, righteousness, and purity within our midst. And so one of the ways we do that is we do not associate with those, and get this, not those in the world who are involved in these things. We're not to disassociate from them because we are in the world to be a light to them, but who are we to disassociate with? We're to disassociate with those who claim to be in the faith but live in clear disobedience to God's command. Wow, that's heavy. This, this is heavy stuff that Paul is laying out here. Not to associate with the sexually immoral people with those who claim faith in Christ. Now, when Paul says not to associate with them, then he goes on and he says, even more specifically, he says, do not even eat with them. Let's understand what he's saying here. He's not saying that you can't have any connection with the person. I think that the scripture itself teaches 
that we need to maintain as much as we can some connection even with these people, but for the purpose of hopefully spurring them back to where they need to be with the Lord. But here's the problem. If I am not acknowledging that they're even in sin, so when Paul says don't eat with them, he's not saying don't go out for a cup of coffee like we would today or don't take them to breakfast so you can kind of follow up and see what God will do. Remember, in that culture, eating with them was, you were fully identifying with a person. You were embracing them in a way that basically said, hey, I'm good, you're good, it's cool, we're fine, no worries. Paul's saying, don't do that. In other words, you can't treat a person who's living in blatant rebellion to God as though they were not. That's what he's really addressing here. John, in his little letter, I think it's 3 John, he says something at the end of it that's it's really interesting. He, he talks about people who come with a different gospel, not the real gospel, and he talks about them even coming to your door, and, he's, and John says, do not let them in your house and do not say God bless you to them. It's like, wow, that's pretty heavy. What, what does he mean? He, he's saying the same thing. He's saying to them, listen, for those who have rejected Christ and his gospel, don't treat them as though they haven't. Don't embrace them as like, hey, we're all brothers and sisters. Don't worry about it. Oh, you don't believe that Jesus is God anymore? Uh, you don't believe that he was born of a virgin? Okay, that's cool, but we all still love the Lord. He's saying, don't do that. No, we have to take a stand on the truth. So that's his point. And, and individually, we have to take that responsibility among ourselves at times. Not just depend on the church leaders to do it. But if we know a brother or sister who we see is you know, drifting into or, or out there and we go to them and we say, hey, you know, what are you doing? I mean, this is not right. This isn't good. And they say, I'm fine with the Lord. Don't judge me, brother. Don't worry about it. I'm good. We cannot say, oh, okay, you're good. Okay, praise the Lord. That's great. And we got to say, well, no, you're, you're not good. I love you. I, I want to see the best for you, but let's not pretend like it's all good because it's not all good. So that's what he's dealing with here, taking individual responsibility. And then finally, he says this. He says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Paul is calling the church to keep our own house in order. You know, it's interesting. Uh, many Christians today, this moment, are shouting and screaming and ranting and raving about all the evil, sinful, terrible things that people out in the world are doing and completely ignoring the evil, sinful, terrible things that are going on right in their midst. Did you notice that here in um, the text, uh, Paul, although the issue happened to be sexual immorality, so he's, that's where he more or less starts, but did you notice what other things he includes here? He includes greed, 
He includes idolatry. He speaks of those who slander and swindle. So how is it that we, we kind of tolerate all this stuff and yet we're shouting at the world that they need to stop doing this and they need to quit living this way? Uh, Paul says, that's not your business. God will judge the world. God has called us to judge within our own midst. God has called us to make sure that we keep our own house in order. And so he says, expel the wicked person from among you. Now, that's what we have in the verses. But let's, let's look at church discipline in the 21st century. As I said earlier, church discipline has always been a challenge. It's always been hard. And as a matter of fact, in the many years that I've been in ministry, I don't know with the exception of maybe one time that I was involved in a church discipline situation that, that looked very similar to what Paul is saying here. Most of the time, church discipline uh, has been in a smaller context, a more of a private type of a thing, uh, but it has been dealt with. A lot of times, quite frankly, it's just overlooked because it's too messy. We, we don't want to do that. Um, it's, it's just going to get really, really awkward and uncomfortable. So that is always the case with church discipline, but it's even more challenging today. And I think in our particular culture, it's very challenging. You know, it's, it's difficult to exercise church discipline because you try to ex exercise discipline and somebody just says, well, heck with you, I'm gonna go to that other church down there. And they're, they're not gonna hold me <laughs> accountable on this. And that's exactly what people do. But there's another component that is becoming more a reality that adds to the challenge of church discipline. In some Western countries, it is being made illegal to speak against what the Bible calls sexual sin. And that is coming to America. I read this yesterday. Bishop-elect of the Evangelical Lutheran Mission Diocese of Finland has been charged by Finland's prosecutor general with incitement against a group of people. The charges stem from a 2004 booklet published which articulates historic Christian teaching on human sexuality. You know what the issue is here? It's same-sex relations. So because this 2004 book written by this particular person or, or quoted by him and supported by him uh, put forth a, the historic biblical position on human sexuality which says that same-sex relations are outside of the will of God, the prosecutor general of the nation is coming after this bishop. This type of intolerance is what the Equality Act is aiming for here in the US. 
The Equality Act, you've probably heard of it. The House has passed it. The House passed it before, but it never got anywhere with the Senate. Um, the House passed it again recently. It's there sort of, you know, before the Senate. And although it says it's the Equality Act, it's really equality if you agree with us and we're going to stomp you to the ground if you don't. That's the truth behind it. So, that's here in the U.S. Similar laws have been passed already in Canada and Australia. In Victoria, Australia, if a same-sex attracted person came to me and said, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't really know that I want to stay in this lifestyle. I feel like, you know, I, I'm feeling convicted or whatever. Um, if I was a pastor in Victoria, Australia, I could not advise, counsel, or even pray for that person without breaking the law. That's happening in Canada. I mean, this is, this is where Western culture has gone and is going. So you can see that this makes church discipline very challenging, very, very difficult. Nevertheless, the church is called still at times to execute or to exercise church discipline. Now, let me just say this again. Not just over sins of a sexual nature, that's the context, as we've seen here, but also over other sins like those mentioned, greed, idolatry, slander, swindling, and, and so forth. So it's not, you know, the culture has a big obsession with sex, and the culture ends up always sort of accusing the church of being obsessed with sex. Like, like the only sin in the Bible is sex. <laughs> you know, no, there's plenty of sins. You know, it's interesting. Some, a few years ago, I was, reading through, um, I was reading through Leviticus 18, and I can't remember the number, but there's like 20, uh, there's something like 24 prohibitions uh, regarding sexual behavior in Leviticus 18, and out of the 24, one of them has to do with same-sex relations. So maybe I'm not right with the number, but let's just say 23 of the prohibitions deal with opposite-sex relationships. But again, the Bible has plenty to say about slander and about idolatry and about Greed and, and those kinds of things. So, but again, this is the world we live in. So here's some questions that I want to address as we wind down here. When does a church practice this kind of discipline? When does a church practice this kind of discipline? And we'll call it formal church discipline. Formal church discipline, meaning the, the elders, the leaders of the church, they have to deal in a, somewhat of a public fashion with this kind of sin. When, when the sin is outward, seen or heard, when it is serious, sin that would question somebody's identif 
identity with and devotion to Jesus and key, unrepentant. Unrepentant, the person involved has been confronted with God's command in scripture, but he or she refuses to let go of the sin. From all appearances, the person prizes their sin more than they prize Jesus. So this, this is an extreme case. That's why in all the years I've been in pastoral ministry, I haven't even experienced this very often. And on the same kind of level as Paul is describing here, maybe only one time. So this is, this is reserved for very serious situation. I mean, sometimes this would happen in the context of a, even say a, a religious leader who is sinning. And that person has to be dealt with publicly because of their influence and so forth. So that is when, when it's outward, serious, and unrepentant. Now, here's another question. How is a person under church discipline to be interacted with by members of the church? So let's just say there is a person who's being disciplined by the church. There's a person who, uh, you know, a particular congregation, the leadership and so forth, have agreed that this person is in rebellion. This person is uh, spreading their rebellion and, and uh, contaminating the church like, like a cancer. And so now we have got to deal with this person and put them out. Um, how then do we interact with a person who's under that kind of church discipline? Well, first of all, we have to always act in love and humility with an eye toward repentance. So repentance is, it, it's, it's a non-negotiable. In other words, you, you've got to move away from that. But we have to approach it with love and humility. Paul, in writing to the Galatians in the sixth chapter, he, he, says if, he says, if anyone is overtaken in a sin, you who are spiritual, restore that person in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. So you see, this isn't, this isn't a thing where like, I'm, I'm supposed to now treat this person horribly. I'm supposed to, uh, you know, talk about them and tell people what they're doing. Or if I see them, I'm supposed to shun them and get as far away from them as I can. I'm supposed to shame them. This is not the way we deal with it. We deal with it in love, humility, with an eye toward repentance, focusing on their life being out of line with the gospel. This isn't personal. This is about you and Christ and your, your confession of faith. And it's about their presence in the community being missed. Like, you know what? We miss you. We want you to come back. You're part of this family. God has a plan. It's like, a, it's like having a wayward child. And what, as a parent, what do you want to see your child do? You want to see your child be brought back into full communion with the family. That's the idea here. And so family members should continue to fulfill family obligations. Now, let's just say this happens 
um, you know, with an actual family member, um, don't kick your kids out and cut family out of your life. That is the wrong way to approach it. Now, some people have thought and mistakenly, I think, interpreted some of these sayings to mean that I can no longer have any association with you because you are now in sin and I can't, you know, our relationship is cut off. You're, you're no longer my child or you're no longer my family member because of this. That, that's not the right way to approach it. Uh, Ephesians 6, 1 through 3, 1 Timothy 5, 8, 1 Peter 3, 1, 1 and 2, all would, would speak against that kind of approach. You see, again, we want to, in love and humility, we want to seek to draw the person back in. But there's, there is that issue that, that has to be dealt with. Like I said, this, this has happened many times. I've talked to people who, because of their choices, they've, they've been cut off by their Christian family. And I, th- I think that, that that can be very wrong. I mean, there, there are times when maybe you need distance. You know, maybe, maybe you have a family member, a relative who is a dangerous drug dealer. And therefore, you say, well, you know, we're not going to invite you over to the family party because we don't want people driving by and shooting up our house. I mean, those things happen, right? So, I mean, there's, there's common sense that we use in this. But we also have to remember that love, mercy, compassion, those are the things that are oftentimes going to be the, the key in, in bringing people back in. And so if they enter into a lifestyle that we disapprove of or something like that, we should not just automatically say, okay, that's it. We need to be really wise and we need to let love be the governing thing. But of course, there is the issue of dealing with the sin as well. Now, the church's objective, and we'll talk about this more in just a second, but the church's objective is always to restore repentant individuals to fellowship. And so when we see that a person has responded, they've complied, they've, they've done what the scripture requires of them, then we should welcome them back in with open arms. We should not put them on some sort of a probation. We should not uh, make them feel like they're second-class citizens. We should celebrate that somebody who was lost is found. And we, you know, we, should, we should be happy and encouraging about it. Now, the goal of discipline is, as I've said already, it's restoration. That's the goal. That's what we want. That's what we're longing for. Churches pursue discipline with the aim of saving people. Churches pursue discipline when they see a member taking a path toward death that they refuse to turn back from, but again, 
salvation and restoration are the ultimate goal. A man named Warren Wiersbe, he said this, and I think it's appropriate. He said, church discipline is not a group of pious policemen out to catch sinners. Rather, it's a group of brokenhearted brothers and sisters seeking to restore an erring member of the family. That's exactly what it is. We do not do this from a position of superiority. We do this from a position of love. Uh, Discipline aims to protect the church. So I have a responsibility to protect the people of God. So if somebody comes in and tries to introduce a a teaching or tries to uh, impose behavior or something like that, that is sinful, we have the responsibility to say, no, you can't do that here. So Pastor John Chubik reminded me of something that I actually forgot about that is so, I mean, it so fits with this. Um, and it's a story that goes back many years, but you know, we did a lot of church planting in uh, Eastern Europe years and years ago. And John reminded me of this situation Um, But let let me just say this first. So discipline aims to protect the church just as cancer spreads from one cell to another. So sin quickly spreads from one person to another. Therefore, it must be dealt with decisively. So this is the story that John reminded me of. So there was a a young girl. She was very gifted. She was uh, musically talented. She was committed to Jesus. She had come to faith. She went to Bible college and we supported her for her time in Bible college. She really got equipped. She went back to her country and to her church. She became the worship leader in her church, and it was a very wonderful thing. But then she just decided that she was going to move in with, first of all, she decided she was gonna date this non-Christian guy, and then she decided she was gonna move in with him. And when this was brought to the attention of the elders of the church, they went to her and said, look, you know, you can't do that. And she said, well, I don't think it's a problem. And what happened is her behavior started affecting the young uh, girls in the church because she was looked up to. And so they thought, well, if she could do that, we could do that too. So all of these young girls started dating non-Christian guys and, and so on. So it finally came to a point where they said, okay, you know, you're, you're not repentant. So obviously you can't continue to lead the church in worship. So they had her step down from worship, but they wanted to be gracious. So they said, you know, you don't have to leave the church, but you can't be involved in service as long as this is going on and you need to get this sorted out. So they kept giving her space and space. And, you know, she never responded. She was insisting like everything was okay. She didn't need to, to comply with them on that. Well, she finally did leave the church, apparently, because she didn't show up for a season, and nobody heard a single thing from her. And then they discovered that she had been murdered by her boyfriend that she moved in with. Wow. Man. Heavy. So if she would have responded to the church discipline, she'd still be alive today. But because she shunned it, 
She put herself in this position. I mean, talk about turning them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. I mean, she wanted to sleep with Satan, so to speak, and this is where it got her. Now, that's obviously an extreme case, but nevertheless, it's the same, it's the same thing. She, her sin began to contaminate, and it ended up destroying her as well. So, discipline aims to protect the church. Discipline aims to present a good witness for Jesus, to show a distinction between the people of God and the people of this world. Church discipline, listen, strange to say, is actually good for non-Christians to see. It's actually good for non-Christians to see because it helps to preserve the distinctiveness of God's people. Remember, Christianity is not just another religion. It is a new way to be human. Churches are to be salt and light to the surrounding world. You know, in this past year, uh, we've had some serious stuff with high-profile Christian leaders coming out and real, you know, being exposed that they've been in sin and, and you know. And... Some leaders in the church have done the right thing by speaking out against it and rightfully condemning that behavior. You know, some other Christians have pushed back and said, everybody's sinners, why are you even saying this? But you know, the world is looking on and saying, okay, we knew that was messed up. We're really glad that you know it's messed up too. Because if you guys thought it was okay, then you are completely discredited before us. So you see, it has an effect on the world. The world knows, just like the pagans knew that this guy's sleeping with his dad's wife. That is nuts. That is over the top. We pagans, we don't even do that stuff. Just like they knew that, they know this too. That if there's no discipline, if there's a pass that's given, if there's just like, well, we're all human and we all, you know, and we just sweep it under the carpet and ignore it, they see that and it dishonors Christ. So here's the thing. The underlying motive in every act of church discipline must be love. We do this not out of spite, not out of anger, not out of hate. We do it out of love. Love for the individual person because we know that this is a path that's gonna to lead to misery and, and hardship and destruction. Love for the church, because the church is the body of Christ. Love for the watching world. We want the world to be saved. So this is a way of loving, showing them the distinction and love for Christ. God, after all, remember, disciplines those that he loves. That's what the Bible tells us. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse six, the Lord disciplines those he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his child. And so church discipline is for the sake of the individual, the church, Jesus, and the reputation of the gospel. Now, in closing, let me say this. Church discipline is not 
a self-righteous, holy crusade against sinners. Remember, the church is the place where sinners find refuge. Our, Our doors are open to sinners. And if our doors weren't open to sinners, then none of us would be here, right? Because we're all sinners. And the only difference between us and people outside living whatever life they're living is the grace of God. We've received it. They haven't yet received it. We want them to receive it. So the the doors of the church are open. The church is to welcome sinners with mercy and grace to find repentance, healing, and restoration. See, that's what we're doing. Mercy and grace, come on in. But there's repentance, of course. God loves you. In your sin, God loves you. But he loves you so much, he will not let you stay where you're at. You see, that's repentance. And so we welcome with mercy and grace to find repentance, healing, and restoration. The church should never preserve or protect sin. And that's what the Corinthian leaders were doing. They were proud of this. Oh, we're, we're so tolerant. You know, they, the culture around them, some of them thought, yeah, tolerance, of course, that's, that's great. So they were actually preserving and protecting sin. The, the church should never do that. That would be to dishonor our Savior, Christ. The church is to shine through mercy and grace the glorious goodness of God who welcomes all people, who welcomes all sinners of every shape and size and kind, but welcomes them into a new life by the power of the Spirit to be transformed. So, since God's heart for sinners is always restoration, let us confess our sins, knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then let us go forward to walk in the light as he is in the light, that we might have fellowship with him, that we might have fellowship with each other, and that the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, might go on continually cleansing us from sin. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. And as we think about that, as we think about, you know, again, sin is not some fun, cool thing that God just wants to make us miserable by keeping us from it. God knows that sin is destructive. Sin will destroy you. And that's why Jesus came and died for sin. So that sin could be forgiven and a relationship could be restored with God and we could go on to live whole and healthy lives. 
the lives that God intends for us.